Happy New Year, everybody, and I hope your 2022 has gone well so far, whether you're listening to this on the day the episode releases or on December 31st of the year about to send it out. I hope you've all enjoyed your December and the time that Matt and I were gone, although we didn't quite take a break like we were originally planning because we did a lot of work on a project that you may already know a little bit about if you followed our social media, but we'll get to that in just a second. We wanted to extend a quick thank you to the patrons who pledged over the break. Elise, Mysterious Donor Dude, Joanne, Drew, Yitza, and Alex. Thank you all so much for joining our patron, and you will now be added to the vaunted group at the end of every episode. And before we get to the episode proper, we just wanted to remind you all that our Crime and Punishment series is going to be beginning next month on February 4th. So keep an eye out for that because we got a couple of guests who we think are going to make it a good time. Uh, and we're going to get to the center of the mysteries, the many mysteries of the themes throughout uh, Crime and Punishment, such as the mystery of what exactly does Raskolnikov believe. Okay, we're looking forward to it, but in the meantime, here's the episode you've been waiting for. Hello, and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Karasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, reviving a several-year-old presentation I did on the book that we're reading for today, so sorry to my old groupmates that you've seen the edits that I've made <laughs> several years since we've done this presentation. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana. Just yesterday, on Saturday, we uh, took the, the kids in, in the program I work for out to do a service day, working at a, at a community farm. Uh, so halfway, like several hours into pulling weeds out of the dirt and directing some kids to like really chop things with rakes in a very aggressive way, I really felt, I think, what Tolstoy wanted me to feel, uh, which is um, a very sore back, but a satisfaction in having your hands in the dirt. So basically, I think I truly understand Anna Karenina now. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to be insufferable about it going forward based on my one day of several hours of labor one time. Yeah, that's about all you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our weeks with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are going back to our namesake. We're going to be reading Leo Tolstoy's Father Sergius. If you want to say in what we're going to be covering next, head on over to patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. Or as little as $3 a month, you can keep your favorite Russian literature podcast running and join in on fun events like movie nights on Discord. And then Matt has added to the script a little winky face. Mm -hmm. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Yeah, you really got to get on the movie nights. They're really fun. I've learned too much about Eisenstein and now I'm ready to be a horrible person to watch films with. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to the reading today, Matt, or further to discussion of Eisenstein, uh, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking a beer that's really become a just a solid one of mine by Pipeworks Brewing here in Chicago. I'm drinking the Ninja vs. Unicorn. Nice. Uh, one of the most ridiculous looking cans that I've stumbled across. I love it. It's approximately 1,000% alcohol. It's great. <laughs> what are you drinking? I'm, I'm good to hear it. I'm, good, I'm glad to hear you it. You are good to hear it, pal. <laughs> um, so I am drinking. Last last time, we did Baltica 9 to celebrate our, our history in Russia. Mm -hmm. So I decided to keep that rolling with my other uh, extended time of living abroad. 
with, uh, and I'm going to say this the full Spanish way, so be prepared. Mm -hmm. Cerveza Alhambra Reserva 1925. Wow, did you study abroad? (laughs) (laughs) I might have mentioned it once or twice. Yes, I did. I studied in Spain for a semester in Granada. Sorry, excuse me. Granada. Uh, (laughs) You you can't say the full thing. Granadino Spanish is is completely incomprehensible. Uh, You just drop all like the pronouns and... You drop all the S's at the end of words, and if D's too close to the end of the word, you also drop it. It's it's incomprehensible. But anyway, so historically, the Iberian Peninsula, and the, the Iberian Peninsula is that little part of Europe that's kind of hanging off the left-hand side. Uh, for the most part today, it, it's Spain and Portugal. But the Umayyad Empire in the 8th century, now the, the Umayyad Caliphate is huge. It's this massive empire that's like all the way from, from West Asia around Persia to almost the entirety of the Middle East, a lot of North Africa, and all the way into pretty much the entire Iberian Peninsula. That's all their territory in like the 8th or 9th century. I wish my history is a bit more concrete in this part. But the the Umayyad Empire, which as you might have guessed, is is ruled by the Umayyad family, is eventually overthrown by what would become the Abbasid um, Caliphate. And they the surviving Umayyads flee to Cordoba, which is a city in, in southern Spain, um, and they, they rule from there. Now, the, the historical name for this, um, the, the caliphate-ruled regions of Spain is uh, Al-Andalus. Today, uh, Andalusia is just kind of the a, a southern region of Spain. But for the next couple of hundred years, the uh, the caliphate of Córdoba is is like the major ruling uh, faction for a, a significant portion of, of the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, and then this continues through actually a couple different uh, ruling families in the area until uh, the, the 15th century. And this continues until the marriage of Ferdinand, uh, actually, Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella of, of Castile. And Aragon or Castile are like just kind of little, not exactly empires, polities. It's part of the same. It's it's a confusing subject. Um, they they marry, they they merge their power, and they embark on on the the, the so-called Reconquista of España, uh, in, in the the attempt to to conquer the whole of the of the Iberian Peninsula and and end up fighting for quite a period of time against the 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 ruling empire at, at that point, which ends in the finally in, in Granada. Actually, Granada eventually is the last uh, Muslim-held state in Spain. And in 1492, the Spanish Reconquista ends with the, the siege of Granada, and eventually the the um, the, the ruling the last rulers in Granada are, are basically forced out. And at that point, um, Ferdinand and Isabella are now in control of, of the the Iberian Peninsula of, of modern day Spain. In, in in Granada, there's this massive, massive palace, essentially. And it was started in like the 8th or 9th century. But over the course of hundreds of years, it's been expanded, built, updated, beautiful beautiful place and for quite a while afterwards because of course it's very beautiful ruling powers in granada granada tend to use it as kind of a a home base or something or other for, for important functions and over time it's some parts are torn down some parts are updated some parts are renovated in like a more modern style and an italian style and you know initially it's this really beautiful old temple old palace but over the years it kind of becomes changed and then there's a long period where it's really kind of neglected 
Uh, it's really not paid much attention to during the uh, Peninsular War when Napoleon invades. Um, <laughs> his troops end up blowing it up. So the when they're being forced out of the city of Granada so that the defending forces can't then use it as a fortress afterwards again, you know, more neglect. It, it's kind of almost being used as just a place for people to go to go stay. Um, and, and eventually... And there, there are attempts to refurbish it, but it, it's, you know, it's so-so. And, you know, eventually, hundreds of years later, we have people who are still, like, amazed by this. I mean, there's a, an American diplomat and writer, Washington Irving, who, fun fact, wrote um, Sleepy Hollow, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And I think old Rip Van Winkle, I'm going to fact check myself on that. Uh, but he, he writes the story, um, the stories of the Alhambra, which is, like, still, you know, when I was in Spain, you could still buy it on the street. Of of just like all the kind of mystic tales that had become attached to the Alhambra over the years. Anyway, uh, there's a beer company named after that. That's kind of an anticlimactic ending to that. But I drank a lot of Alhambra beer while I was in living in Granada. So I'm, I'm bringing myself back to the past with some Cerveza Alhambra. And yes, you do both do soft C's and Z's and thuz in, in Spanish, in Spain God. Spanish. So hot when he studies abroad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, sorry, that was that was an entire digression, which you did not need to know about Spain. No, that's mostly the episode that we had prepared. So unfortunately, that's about all we've got. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the episode, I will be reading from Stories of the Alhambra by Washington Irving. Uh, no, we're going to begin heading on to over to Father Sergius to talk about some TM, some Orthodoxy discourse. Well, it's like Orthodox discourse if you wanted Tolstoy's take on it in the late '90s. You didn't. Yes, <laughs> you you didn't ask for this, but. Come on, at this, you've listened to our podcast for long enough. You had to know what you're tuning into. Fools. We, we, we've already done Anna Karenina. We're not doing big Tolstoy stuff anymore. We're going to those really niche Tolstoy issues now. We're, go, we're going deep into the 90s with Tolstoy. Yeah. Is is there any context you want to cover? No, I have no context at all for this. I think you should have all the context you need, which is Tolstoy really didn't like the Orthodox Church. Uh, but I really yeah, that's fair. don't want to focus on context or content. Cameron, what I got to know, if you had to describe this in one word, Say a word that might be unexpected while you were reading this. How would you describe this story? <laughs> I feel like I'm being railroaded into this answer. Yes, you are, because I want to tell a story after. <laughs> <laughs> this story from Leo Tolstoy is unexpectedly horny. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, a little, um, a little embarrassingly so, but Matt, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that really good segue no i just i i you reminded me when you mentioned that to me that when i was giving a presentation on this like how funny i found it was like some parts of the story because i was like whoa wasn't expecting this but the people that i like the people in the class i was taking it with like didn't really see the humor in it i guess and i was like huh you must be really boring people to talk to outside of class <laughs> uh, that's coming from a russian lit major so it's pretty pretty deep condemnation it's pretty, pretty deep condemnation actually if you think about it anyways <laughs> We got a horny story for you today. Yes, yes, we do. So you may be asking us, Matt, Cameron, how could a story, any story written by Count Lev Tolstoy possibly be horny? It doesn't get hornier than special smiles. Well, unfortunately, my friend, it does. And it's a little embarrassing, but also very funny. It's pretty funny. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it off by just reading the first sentence. Well, first two sentences, actually. Nope, just one sentence. I was just seeing the dot after Nicholas the First. In Petersburg in the 1840s, a surprising event occurred. An officer of the Curacier lifeguards, a handsome prince who everyone predicted would become an aide-de-camp to the Emperor Nicholas I, 
and have a brilliant career, left the service, broke off his engagement to a beautiful maid of honor, a favor of the Empress's, gave his small estate to his sister, and retired to a monastery to become a monk. This, writ large, is the story of Prince Stepan Kosatsky. Got a good, well, good-ish Stepan this time. I mean, once a month, don't you think about just like, let me hang it up, I'm going to go join a monastery? Or is that kind of a me thing? Depending on how my day is going at work, I do often have that thought. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I get some emails and I think, do I really have to respond to this email? Or what if I just leave and become a monk? Yeah, right? I live not more than, I think, 15 minutes from an active monastery. So I don't know if they just accept walk-ins, but I could try. Uh, can we still do the podcast? Or you think it's going to be kind of a no-no? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I'll have to, I'll, I'll email them about that. I'll okay. let you know. Yeah, let me know. Okay. Send them our pitch info <laughs> if they want to sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> I, not after this episode. I don't think they will. Mm-hmm, probably not. Yeah, so we follow the story of Stepan Kosatsky, a prince who has a small family. His, his father dies when he's quite young, and his, his mother, following uh, her husband's wishes, sends Stepan to the military college. Throughout his youth, Stepan is noted for being kind of, uh, basically, he's, he's sort of, a, he's great at everything he does. And he often finds faults in himself, and those faults he, he seeks to rectify. Not being good enough at French? Well, I'm going to become a master at French, and then he just does. I'm not very good at riding horses. Well, I'm going to do it until I'm the best at riding horses, and he does. Um, and that all is with the exception of his fits of fury, which he just cannot control and several times almost basically derail his career as a, even before he's 18, but because he's so good at everything else, that's all kind of brushed under the carpet. So outside of this, he, he, he starts working in the aristocratic regiment of the guards for the emperor, uh, Emperor Nicholas Pavlovich or Nicholas I, and he's really content to, and he's trying to bring himself up in society move to becoming an aide-de-camp, which everyone pretty much thinks, yeah, maybe he's not of the, the highest born or the, the best placed, but he's, he's bright enough that he's probably going to make it there. Part of his, his stepladder up is through becoming part of, kind of a society man. So he learns to dance, he begins to impress people, and finally he finds um, this woman who he begins to kind of flirt with and eventually propose to. Uh, eventually he actually does genuinely fall in love with her, and, and she seems to fall in love with him back. It's noted by Tolstoy or, or the, the narrator that um, Stepan is part of a certain generation which expects very highly of the people around him. And the narrator does say that, that it's a little hypocritical because he doesn't always, or people of that kind of conviction, sometimes forgive laxity in themselves and not in others. But whatever the case may be, they have very high standards for the people around them and for their marriages. In particular, this means basically they would like to wed someone who is a virgin has never had a relationship before. That is... Uh, Stepan's assumption about his fiance until one day she tells him, hey, you know how I'm really close to the emperor? Well, that's because last year we were kind of a thing. And he's like, what? And she's like, yes, I was sleeping with the emperor. And he's like, my life is ruined. And he runs off. And that very, or like that day or within the following days, he, he gives all his property to his sister and joins a nearby monastery. <laughs> it's a big record scratch moment. Big, big, you know. Your your fiance has slept with the emperor, has had sex before. Now everything is ruined. Yeah, it's it's noted true. that he would have killed whoever the what person was if it wasn't the emperor who he did love enough that he's like, I guess I won't kill the emperor. I guess I'll just <laughs> abandon my life and become a monk instead. Nope, nothing left to do besides that. Basically, yeah, pretty much. His sister uh, notes that she thinks she understands him, which no one else does. They're like, what? 
are you doing? You, you're like throwing away a great career path, life, you know, marriage. And she notes that she understands because by becoming a monk, he shows contempt to what seems important to everyone else and what it seemed to him too when he was in the service. And it, that that's kind of partially correct. Uh, but it's also noted that he does have a sort of a sense of despair, which has been leading him through life. And now he's kind of hoping to rectify that through a uh, faith in God. He spends some years in this monastery quite doing well at it. He's just like everything else in his life. He, he's, he's kind of the best at it. And although it's, it's often boring, he really has to do a lot of boring tasks, sit through or stand actually stand through a lot of really boring services. He's so dedicated to being no chairs, huh? no chairs, gotta stand, no chairs, not in an Orthodox church, no baby, unless you're a heathen, right? <laughs> um, it's really his obedience and his his dedication to being obedient as as a virtue which keeps him going through this. Um, although he does have he does struggle with failings, especially lust and regret over what could have been. So after seven years and attaining um, the title of priest, he's sent to another monastery uh, closer to the city, which is difficult for him because now the abbot here, where one of the one of the virtues of being a monk is total obedience to whoever is the abbot of your monastery. Well, this abbot is pretty worldly, and he's obviously trying to get ahead in the world. And, and Sergius, or excuse me, I should I should mention um, our friend Stepan, upon ascending to fatherhood in his third year, becomes Sergius or Sergi in in Russian. And he Sergius now takes offense to this, and he does not like this guy, including up to one point when an old comrade of of, of Sergius's comes to visit. Uh, the abbot invites him in from taking away from service, basically to kind of show him off this new you know, the new Sergius and Sergius kind of goes off on the abbot from taking him up and away from services to be basically a showpiece. And that ends in not exactly his banishment, but his old, his old abbot writing him and saying, look, I know that the abbot is a little out of line, but really it's on you for stepping out and, and you should have just kind of taken the hit and and kept on with your virtue of obedience you know i could recall you back here but i think what might be better for you now considering what you've done is there is an anchorite which has recently died and an anchorite is someone who removes themselves from from life in order to be a hermit for religious reasons but anchorite sounds cooler than hermit it does, it does. um and he's recently died why don't you take his place oh sorry you're gonna say something nope just that it does sound cooler yeah <laughs> it, it does sound cool I, I i would love to be an anchorite it sounds yeah. awesome yeah so he becomes a he becomes a hermit, and this lasts for a number of years until one day a group of merry merrymakers, rich men, women, uh, lawyers, all the time, <laughs> uh, a whole group of people are traveling along. They're having a great time, and there's one woman who is part of the group, Akovkina, who is she's a divorcee. She's quite attractive. She's very rich. She's really eccentric, and the, she's very bored by everything. Everyone, everything that everyone's doing, it's always the same conversation, always the same amusements. She kind of hates everyone she's around. And as they're in their little troika, she kind of looks out and notices which area she's in and says, hey, wait, isn't this the area where that, that anchorite, uh, Father Sergius, lives in? The, you know, the, the handsome one. And Father Sergius is known as kind of the handsome, he's a handsome guy. That's what's noted. Many of the people who visit the services when he was previously in monasteries noted that he was a really handsome dude and that was kind of one of the things he struggled with was that knowledge of other people perceiving him it's yeah it's it's gotta be hard being just that hot honestly it's just just so hard to be hot isn't it it's just a struggle wouldn't know but it must be 
A lot of these people, because they're high society, people speak French and they assume that lower class people doesn't, not knowing that Sergius is actually completely fluent in French. So when they're around him, like, man, that dude, he's hot. But imagine that in French. I I, I refuse to learn French, so I don't know how to say that. That's fair. Um, <laughs> uh, he does not. That's, that's one of the things he struggles with. So uh, she's like, there's the hot priest. You know what? I bet you all I can seduce this priest. They're like, no way. And she's like, try me. Let me do it. So they drop her off outside, and she goes to late in the day to go talk to him. And when she arrives, she knocks on his door, and it's freezing outside. And she's telling him, "Hey, like, can you let me in? I've gotten lost. I, I, I'm kind of freezing. I need food. I need to warm up." And and Sergius immediately assumes that she's the devil here to tempt him, mm -hmm. uh, because in in Solitude, it's noted that he struggles two things greatly, and really those two things are the same thing. He struggles with with doubt, and he struggles with lust. So upon seeing her, he thinks, "Oh." You know, in, in, oh God, what was it? Lives of the Saints. He, he says, can it be as in Lives of the Saints that the devil takes on the form of a woman? And after a while, she's like kind of pounding in the window. is like, no, seriously, I'm freezing to death out here, dude. Let me in. <laughs> and when he finally goes to look at her after being like, you know, go away, devil. I cast thee out. Uh, he looks up and they kind of, they see each other for the first time. And she knows that they, she thinks they have an understanding. And he, to make back to his perspective, thinks, oh, this can't possibly be a devil. So he invites her in goes behind a curtain is like, you know, do whatever you need to do. I'll be over here. And she's like, oh, perfect. I'm in time to seduce Father Sergius. She, she actually did step into puddle accidentally. So she's actually taking off some of her clothing. And then she kind of was like, okay, it's now or never. And she's like, oh, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in pain. Not I'm in pain. I, I need help. Father Sergius, Father Sergius, Sergei Dmitrich, Prince Kazatsky. Look, I wouldn't call you for it necessary, but I'm ill. As she says, as she's like kind of undressing. And this is the part where it's like getting a little uncomfortably horny in the writing where it's like describing her pulling off her stockings and exposing her breast and just yelling out oh oh she groans falling back you know mostly naked trying to trying to be like father sergius you've got to come to me <laughs> and then sergius at this point remembers it behind the curtain he's like prostrate on the ground just like praying to god like lord god please send the woman away and she's like i bet he's thinking of me as he's as he's praying and it's i, I really can't emphasize how uncomfortably horny it is like it's it was it was a little uncomfortable to read and he thinks of uh, of the story of of another a saint who is in the same situation as him and the saint uh sticks his hand into a brazier or like a candle fixture to burn his hands until the the lust goes away so and he looks around and says no there's no and you know, there's no like big fire thing here as a candle. He puts his hand over it and it's too hot and he just can't stand it. So as, as um, you know, Makovkina is calling out to him, he, he just like stands up and is like, I know what I have to do. And he walks outside right past her and he grabs an axe and he cuts his left forefinger off. Got her. And he goes back inside. <laughs> Sorry. He got her. She didn't see it coming. He, she didn't see it coming. Yeah, he goes back nope. inside. And she's like, you must help me, Father Sergius. And then she sees the fact that he's like cut off his finger and it instantly feels bad. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm sinning. How can I atone for my sin? And then he's like, we'll just go away. God will forgive you. And she's begging him to forgive him. And he's just like going back behind the curtain is like, God, and you will sort it out. And then she leaves and her friends all pick her up and they're like, so just seduce him. And then she's not having the conversation anymore, silent the rest of the way home. And then she, a year later, enters a convent and enters the same sort of religious life that that Father Sergius is in. Sergius nice. lives as a recluse. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Nice. Nice. Father Sergius. <laughs> Father Sergius bringing people to the faith. Nice. Yeah, one finger or another. <laughs>
<laughs> one finger for each person in the faith. One finger at a time. Exactly. So Father Sergius lives as a recluse for another seven years, and then throughout that time, he, he's he's just doing anchorite things, praying, focusing on himself, himself, doing nothing really. And so one day, a woman comes to him and brings her sick son and says, please, I, I brought him to doctors, I brought him to other holy people, but no one can help him. Please help my son. And Sergius is like, hey, look, um, asking me to heal your son is a little bit presumptuous. That, that's really God's domain. And she says, just just pray for him. And she begs, she kind of harasses him for several days until finally says, okay, fine, I, I will do it. And he puts his hand on the boy's head and prays for his soul. Uh, a month later, after this event, the boy heals. Maybe a holy man. And people start coming from all around to the new Staret Sergius, as they now call him. And they people begin to come to him uh, looking for healing. And Sergius, or Staret Sergius, is... A little, he's kind of taken aback because he feels like, well, isn't the right, the godly thing to do? I'm an anchorite. I should be focusing on myself and my relationship with God. But people are coming to me and they tell me that I'm a great healer and it feels good when I'm helping people. So that can't be sinful, right? And of course, the abbot who sent him there and the uh, archimandrite who is kind of like oversees the anchorites, I understand could be wrong if there are any orthodox scholars that they're going to come from my neck you can do it wherever you want any orthodox monks out there please <laughs> reach out yeah who wrote it who want to cancel me over my misunderstanding of um orthodox no uh, i don't want to become canceled i want to um get some sponsorships and i want to create a <laughs> i want to turn into a video podcast where it's just me and cameron chilling monastery becoming orthodox monks yeah honestly <laughs> honestly <laughs> We both become anchorites, but if we just live stream ourselves. <laughs> um, so for the next couple of years, he's he's seeing people every day, healing them, you know, and, and feeling great. Top of the world. This is the way the saints behave, he believes. Uh, and so one day he just does it all day. He's so tired. And, and uh, just like a guy who's come along and has kind of helped him has like says drives people away and says look he's he's like father star at sergius is about to pass out you need to all go away and that's partially out of this guy's concern over sergius's health but it's also because he wants sergius to himself because his daughter is really sick and he's come many many verses looking for someone who can truly heal her because after her mother died she just has been had this weird sickness which hasn't gone away and no one knows what it is but she's just in pain and now she she can't leave the home and so he's come to Sergius to figure out what's wrong. So driving everyone else away, um, he says, let, let me go get my daughter. Please help her. And, and Sergius is like, well, you've done so much for me. How can I not? And as in, in, when he's gone, Sergius kind of has a quiet moment where he's kind of thinking, you know, I've done, I've done so much. And yet I feel, I feel farther away from God than when I started. I, I you know, when, when he notes that when this man had told him about his sick daughter, he begins asking after her and he thinks, he, he thinks of her as he asks her questions basically because he like feels a weird sexual attraction to this man's daughter. She's like 22. Uh, so it's, it's weird, but like not as weird as you may be imagining. Um, I mean, it's still pretty weird though. Cause this guy's like 50 something. It's like not as weird as it could have been for this story. Yeah. Finally, this, as Sergius is alone, he's kind of thinking like, I feel like I've kind of squandered away everything I had. You know, I was looking for, for piety and I was looking for, for everything else, but, and, and I've given away piety for, for love really. And now I have neither love nor humility nor piety. So the, the man brings his daughter to, to Sergius and leaves them alone. He's like, okay, you can heal her. 
And uh, basically the daughter's like, he's like, hey, what's up with you? And she's like, oh, I don't know. And she kind of like touches him and he's like, what are you doing? She's like, I don't know, unless you know what we're doing. And he's like, well, this is sinful. And she's like, isn't it? Uh, and then they have sex. And then the next morning, Sergius wakes up and is like, oh, my God, what have I done? This is going to ruin me. And he goes outside to go get Nax. Clearly, the implication being that he's about to murder this girl. Um, and then one of his assistants comes by and is like, oh, you're going to cut some wood. Let me, let me, I'll cut some wood for you. Don't worry, father. You're, you're too old. Takes the axe from him. And then Sergius is like, okay, I, I need to go. I need to run. I, I've already given up my, my vow of, of uh, chastity. And also, I was about to murder someone, although clearly that doesn't weigh, weigh as heavily on his mind. Uh, and he takes some peasant clothes, which he had hidden away a long time ago when he's been considering running away. And, and he runs off to go find. A, 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 a woman he used to know, Pashenka, a girl he knew as a child who had always been kind of timid, and he and the other kids that they played with had always bullied her. And um, he know, and over, over the course of her life, he knows that she'd gotten older and married uh, a man who had beaten her, and his, her son had died, and her daughter had married a kind of a drunkard. So her life's not going great, but he decides, I need to go see her. And so he travels by foot about 300 versts uh, as, a, as a beggar, to go see her and finally he comes across her in the town she lives in with her daughter uh, her, her son-in-law and her five grandkids and, and at this point basically her her son-in-law is just too drunk to do anything so she is the only one earning money although formerly she was kind of a society person now she's giving music lessons to earn basically the family's whole income and Sergius comes across her and they talk for a little while and she kind of talks to him through the difficulty of her life and she's kind of defending the people around her and in many ways, it's clear that she's the spirit of this entire household, and she keeps getting called away to help the kids. And, you know, Sergius is really impressed with her, but she kind of tells him, no, I'm really, it's, this is my punishment. You know, I, I lived in sin. I, I met my husband through sin. <laughs> this is this is my, my atonement for the life I chose. And, and Sergius doesn't express this to her, but he, he thinks that, no, really, she is more godly than I have ever been because she's been entirely selfless in living for other people. And he, he says, Pashenka is exactly what I should have been and what I was not. I live for people on the pretext of living for God. And she lives for God, imagining that she lives only for people. And with this new knowledge, he uh, thanks her and then takes off. And he lives his life as a, as a beggar until he's arrested and sent to Siberia for not having a passport. Uh, at which point it's rumored that he uh, settled down as a hired man, uh, working in the kitchen, teaching children and attending to the sick. And that is where we leave. Step, uh, it's also notable, sorry, I should add that when he leaves the monastery, he casts off the name uh, Staret Sergius or, or Father Sergius and takes on the name uh, Stepan um, Kazatsky again. So he goes through life with three names, Stepan Kazatsky, Father Sergius, Staret Sergius, and finally returning to Stepan again, which is the one he lives on until presumably his death. And that is the story of Father Sergius. So I, I'm curious how you how you liked it. Just generally, personally, since I was the one who recommended this one. I, okay, so you already kind of got this before the, we recorded like half an episode just chatting about this book before we even mm -hmm. started recording, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, we decided we need to just get into it before we spoke too much and had nothing left to say. But right. I just read um, Loris by Eugene Vodolazkin, and I don't know for certain that Vodolazkin took influence from Father Sergius for, for, for Loris, but it's a remarkably similar story of a, of a wandering holy man who heals people uh, but never feels comfortable in his role and is kind of struggles with sort of lust in, in his like and his humility in tr issues with humility and trying to repent for previous wrongs as he travels through the land and changes his name with each new cycle of his life, changing his name ultimately four times over the course of his life. Um, so like it was kind of like a condensed 
much more thematic. Not that Loras isn't thematic, but much more like aggressively, <laughs> aggressively sure. moral version of that. So I really enjoyed it because it was really, it really made me think a lot more on the themes of that book. And even absent of that, Father Sergius is really kind of a challenging work for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, I kind of wonder if um, this is a good recommendation or not, but I always tell people before they start to tackle a book like Anna Karenina, for instance, well, why don't you start with the short story like Father Sergius or anything else from this collection of short stories which are really quite wonderful and which you can pick up through our affiliate link on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Um, I think it's easier to get into Tolstoy from this end. Granted, this is towards the end of his life and when he's kind of developed uh, uh, quote-unquote opinions, TM, TM, TM. <laughs> right. Um, this is but, this is written in the 1890s and not published until like 1911 after his death. Um, this is in like the Kreutzer Sonata era where he's developing, as you've said, um, capital O opinions about things. Yeah, it's not great, usually. Um, <laughs> but, but that being said, I, I think like that's why it makes the interesting works uh, more interesting generally to people is they're kind of more nuanced versions of what later gets to be developed which ends up being a little bit too much on the nose for most people i would say but um i think this one is still better than most of the other things that he (laughs) writes kind of uh after this and around this period i think it's i think i thought it was really funny (laughs) like the temptation scene in the middle was like absolutely hilarious i thought (laughs) i i don't find it funny so much as this like Oh, this is this is kind of strange. I don't like Tolstoy being horny on Maine, but I could definitely see it being pretty funny once yeah, you kind of get over that because that's just like so separate from Tolstoy in my mind. But it, yeah. it it kind of is in the second read through. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So you want to talk about saints' lives? Let's talk about saints' lives. Ooh. This is not, and I've been itching to get to that. Saints' lives. Saints' lives. Everybody loves saints' lives. We're talking about religious texts. Every everyone loves saints' lives. Yes, sir. <laughs> I feel like. Saints' lives are really important, and I don't think it's actually something we've talked about. Yes. What What is saints' lives, Matt? Saints' lives for Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church generally a, a collection of stories of generally pseudo-biographically accepted facts uh, about saints in the Orthodox Church, and it also happens to be uh, really interesting and one of the only sources of historical information for russia when you're getting really far back and as i mentioned that you know it's usually kind of an exaggerated and at the same time pared down version of what it is somebody who has then been dubbed a saint by the orthodox church throughout their lives Uh, but there are generally speaking a couple of key indicators and key themes which we see Tolstoy wrestling with. And in my opinion, he actually does uphold some of these. I don't actually think he's disputing these saintly elements and think he's disputing more of the institution within which they occur. But uh, Cameron and I <laughs> stumbled across the same article that we uh, both <laughs> had had read this for this, this week. Uh, I, I'm looking from all the way back from 1983, from the 1983 corner, uh, Margaret Zielkowski's hagiographical motifs in Tolstoy's Father Sergius, um pretty pretty quick read but uh pretty good one and generally speaking i i would say i had this this outlined uh for myself on some of the key features of saints lives and orthodox hagiography that uh you could pretty much trace throughout the story uh and i'll just give a quick summation here because i think it's interesting uh most most saints start with this kind of 
early pious attitude. Uh, they maybe don't don't fit in with the with the earthly world around them necessarily. Uh, usually, their parents disprove of their monastic life that they then choose to lead. Um, Father Sergius here, of course, he he adopts the monastic way of life and relinquishes his property. That's kind of a given if you're uh, a monk relinquishing your large estate uh, if you happen to be pretty wealthy. The temptations with lust that young monks struggle with which usually they, they overcome. In this case, in the story of Father Sergius chopping off his finger, which we can talk about, it's a pretty, pretty graphic scene. Um, though, that being said, uh, oftentimes hagiographers are not particularly inclined to acknowledge any weakness in their subjects. Especially not Slavic ones. No, exactly. That's that's what's so interesting about Tolstoy. Is he's, tell- he's telling a humanizing version in a lot of ways of uh, what you would see in like a quote-unquote saint's life. And so generally speaking, they, they have some sort of ascetic feat or victory over their temptation, really heavily influenced by the Desert Fathers. Um, this insistence on not yielding to physical weakness, especially in old age, which of course our Father Sergius eventually kind of sort of does. Um, and finally it ends with a death that is really remarkable for its peacefulness, usually associated with knowing their time has come, uh, and, and passing very, very peacefully. And so these are kind of generally, very generally speaking, these are some of the traits and attributes in which you could associate with a saint throughout their lives. And, and I think that Tolstoy basically just, he takes this, he slaps on a narrative, but then he does some kind of interesting things. It's it's both a, a critique of a saint's life, but it's also, in a way, upholds it. At least some parts of it. A Tolstoyan version of it. In classic Tolstoyan fashion. Yeah, it is really his It is his own version of it. You couldn't let him have it all the way. <laughs> yeah, I do. I want to I build on it briefly and say that, so it, in many ways, this, this, this is a saint's life. This is, this is like a, a hagiography, really. But one of the really interesting things about it, and I think this is from Zilkowski's article, but it might also be, I don't remember what this point is from, this could also be from an article by Walsh and Alessi, um, the Apothegmata, Patrum, and Tolstoy's father, Sergius. I, I know you don't know what word I just said. I don't know it either. I'm looking directly at it. It's going directly out of my mind. <laughs> but basically, in, in traditional hagiography, uh, although the fall is often many a part of many of these stories, um, it, the story itself is pretty black and white. It's assumed that the mindset is in line with the actions. So when the saint is doing good, the saint's thoughts are themselves good. And when the saint's does badly and falls the saint's thought itself is also a bad thought however what tolstoy is doing by interesting we, we tend to associate kind of like that inner life at least i do i associate that like that that focus on inner life with more so dostoevsky um and especially like an inner life which is kind of hateful in a way um this is this is really what tolstoy is doing he's taking that hagiography and adding that inner life which is not always in line with his actions when he's healing people that should be the height of, of this story. He's a healer. He's bringing the light of, 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 of this God to these people and taking away their, their illnesses and the things they don't want. But it's revealed at the end that really that, that action, although it seems to be living for God, was really living for himself. And it was actually quite, was really a result of pride um, for him. And he, he kept doing because of that, this very human prideful thing. So we, we have actions not in a good action not in line with its negative, you know, negative thought associated with it, which is a really interesting and humanizing, as you've said, element to bring to this hagiography. Yeah, it's 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think part of the reason for a lot of those, especially the early Saints lives, were just like they weren't, obviously, it's not stupid to say, but they obviously weren't written as like literature narratives. They're really supposed to be plot points, essentially. Um, Like thinking about the form of of them, they weren't written for a literary journal of the the 19th century. Um, (laughs) But the way that Tolstoy does it is super, is super interesting and challenging to the convention of them as such, which I, which I enjoy. Yeah. And, and like this really is a subverted um, hagiography because as, as um, Zolkowski points out, this is very similar to the story of the Phoenician hermit, Yaakov the Faster, which I could not find on Google, but I'm, I'm assured by Zolkowski's um, footnotes is, is part of the reading Menea and the prologue. Um, it, basically, all the plot points of his life are just taken directly from Yaakov the Faster, the only exception being the ones that Yaakov sleeps with the, with the woman towards the end he murders her with an axe and then goes to confess to his brothers and they say, you know, go repent. And he, and he does in a cave for 10 years and comes back and basically, you know, he's, he's repented and his time is, he's all good now. Um, which interesting that like murder is that low down on sins compared to sex, but whatever. But then, then at that point when he does not kill this, this 22 year old with an axe, uh, that's when it diverges significantly and goes off into being more of a, Tolstoy and moral rather than the traditional orthodox moral which Tolstoy did not much care for yeah Tolstoy really I mean as you mentioned when we were talking earlier when you said I, I think I kind of I think I kind of got it everything's kind of up front and center in a lot of ways I think you're right because I think that's the point of the story for me it's really a critique of not really even just the orthodox church but you can see why the orthodox church didn't like it uh it's a cre- it's a critique <laughs> more largely about kind of institutions of truth, I would say. And he has this in hmm. his later writings in the confession where he says, uh, talking about stories about saints and martyrs, etc. He says, there were stories of the ignorant, stupid men who knew nothing about the teaching of the church, but were saved. And I think that's what, what he comes to find out by the end, which is that the church isn't really the actual thing that does the saving. And I think that's obviously what's so heretical about it of, of many things i should add yeah a lot of things including and this is just a fun fact i wanted to bring up so part of the the, <laughs> the impetus for the story was um visiting uh this this monastery in 1877 where he meets a venerated elder named by the name of ambrose there now the interesting thing about ambrose is that tolstoy and dostoevsky are both familiar of this elder and they took wildly different directions on it so dostoevsky familiar with ambrose um, took him as partial inspiration for Father Zosima and the Brothers Karamazov, and uh, in a, in a bit more of a Karamazov positive Karamazov. Thank you. And the Brothers uh, Karamazov, when uh, in a bit more of a positive viewpoint, where to- Tolstoy takes a totally like left turn down an alley, and he writes of Ambrose. Um, and this is I'm taking this from um, the Apothegmata product. Patrum and Tolstoy's father Sergius, the elder is incredibly pathetic in the midst of so much temptation. And in addition to that, he <laughs> dismissed monastic life in general as spiritual sybaritism or sybaritism. Matt and I debated. So sybaritism comes from sybarite. Sybarite is someone who enjoys like a life full of luxury. Spiritual sybaritism. Physical, uh, spiritual cyberism. He, he lives on the net. Cyber. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so yeah, so Mon- Tolstoy is not real down with monastic life in part from visiting the very same person that Dostoevsky took much more positively, which is a little fun fact of history, fun fact of history, which I was not obviously not aware of before because I'd never heard of Ambrose. So the more you know, 
the more you know. Um, in addition to that, I also wanted to note about, uh, like like Matt mentioned, um, the, the the meaning of the story is kind of on its face. You know, taking uh, hagiography and being a bit heretical by introducing a personal life which is not so holy. Uh, Walsh and Alessi, in the same article I mentioned before, also take a line from Tolstoy's diary. So in, in November of 1891, Tolstoy writes, I was just now giving some thoughts to Sergius. It's necessary that he should struggle against pride, that he should land in that false milieu where humility is converted into pride. So a lot of the humility which Father Sergius or o- Staret Sergius is so concerned with the story really is truly coming from pride, which we've already hammered home, but really like can't hit it in the face enough that that's what Tolstoy is trying to tell you, even according to Tolstoy's own diary. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, not, not to keep harping on my own point, which I see is brilliant, stunning, show-stopping. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the, the idea of the church not being able to, to save people, generally, uh, and the lack of spirituality even throughout the story is... I think kind of comes to a head on the part we didn't really get to talk a lot about yet, but the uh, chopping the old fingy off with Makovkina. That I mean, as I said already, <laughs> I know it probably wasn't supposed to be funny, but but uh, <laughs> I thought that was just all of it was just phenomenal, super funny. I think it's interesting that he has to chop his finger off in order to not have sex with her. <laughs> like he is supposed to do. So it's actually, in in a way, the inverse of what he does later, which is physical healing through uh, spirituality. It's this inversion in his actual personal life in which he can only protect his spirituality through physic- like a physical change, in this case, physical harm. The only way that he can not have sex with this woman is by chopping his finger off because the spirituality actually cannot save him in this instance, and he realizes that. Um and the fact that he realizes that while linking it to a historical saint as well is even more heretical, I guess. I guess I can't be the judge of that necessarily. But I, I just think it, the, it's very an interesting story to look at the, the physical versus the spiritual. And the spiritual, it's, it's not doing a ton for him himself. It does more for uh, the other people that he, he heals in his momentary healingness and his momentary healing right. frenzy. But he, you know, he still has uh, nine and a half fingers. So, <laughs> I I think it is notable that he remembers the story of a saint who avoided temptation by burning his fingers up, basically, uh, and then tries to do that and immediately fails and said, "No, that's too much." <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a little again on the nose, but it's also there's like a lot of things that because he. He constantly compares himself to a saint throughout the whole story, but I'm, I, you know, I haven't read all the saint slides. But if I had to take a stab in the dark, uh, I would say one of the things that saints don't do throughout their lives is think, mm, "I bet I'm going to be a saint if I do this," <laughs> um, and that is, you know, exactly what he do. This, this is exactly what you're talking about of humility turning into pride. I mean, like hundred percent. Yeah. Right. And then at the end of the story. He, he comes across another group of rich people and among them is a Frenchman who kind of is making fun of him. And again, you know, they don't assume he, he can speak French because he looks like a beggar. And he just kind of lets it pass over him and kind of thinks to the end, wow, I'm so hum- humble now. Like, it doesn't even matter anymore, which <laughs> I think I think it's um, I think it's Zilkowski who brings up the kind of like impossibility that that Tolstoy kind of poses where basically Sergius at the end kind of wants to have the same sort of humility that Pashenka has but it's difficult because Pashenka 
is humble because she doesn't know that she's humble. She just assumes that, you know, she's kind of a, almost like, kind of like, I almost wanted to read the, the book of Lot after reading Pashenka's story or that section because she's, the, the, her godliness comes from the very fact that she's living a normal life and is, is doing everything she can to support the people around her. And Kasatsky now, and he's, he is Kasatsky, he's no longer Sergius, thinks that I should be like her. And when he's kind of thinking about how he's being insulted by this French guy and just lets it pass over him, he's kind of like, yeah, I'm humble now. It's kind of impossible because now that you're self-aware, you have to think about how humble you are or like what it means to be humble. And that kind of creates a sort of impossibility of the ideal of what it means to be godly in the sense to, to not be aware of your humbleness. It just It just creates a paradox. You cannot be either you're aware of what you're doing is humble or not, or which itself is not humble, or you are humble by not knowing, which makes it impossible unless you're just naturally that way. It's it's like it's an interesting critique of, as Zelkowski po- points it, or poses it to be, of kind of like the how the traditional hagiography fails, but also Tolstoy's kind of denouement to the action. His his result is also not really an answer. <laughs> But, I mean, Tolstoy also ended his life by just wandering off into the night and then dying. So this is actually pretty true to how he lived his own life. So you can't say he's a hypocrite in that in that front. <laughs> no, I guess not in the death. I, I do think it is, like, him trying to work out a personal thing here, though, because his whole life is really spent trying to work out how do you live like a peasant and essentially how do you have this humility and how do you be humble in your everyday life. But the fact is that the awareness of your own humility just ruins it. And so he he does, I mean, he writes this essentially literary philosophy over decades that can't is kind of foiled by you being aware of it um, and of him being aware of it, ultimately, I, I would think. And that's got to be really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like the awareness that he will never reach it, which... Dude, that sucks. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I think if Tolstoy had been born in an area where Buddhism had been prevalent, he would have had a very different life. Yeah. <laughs> a, 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 a philosophy which allowed for the suffering of life, but a, a way out that wasn't as, that wasn't like as, as tough as his ideology, which revolves in reaction to orthodoxy, probably would have been a little bit less uh, yeah. Tolstoyan, for lack of a better term. Yeah. But some issues with some of the ideological kind of demount aside it is a really cool criticism of traditional hagiography which is something that may not necessarily interest you but it is super interesting at that in Tolstoy's introduction of a, a human thought pattern into what is otherwise a pretty straightforward hagiography it's fun it's not that long of a read either you can and this is I'm gonna I'm gonna out myself here I don't even have this in book format <gasps> I'm reading this on 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 uh, this is a Project Gutenberg ebook that wow. I'm reading on my computer. So, if you just Google Father Sergius, Sergius, uh, you will find this for Project by Project Gutenberg, translated by Luis and Eilmer Mod, and it is a free, easy, accessible text. But you can also, as as Matt has mentioned, if you'd like a hard copy and you enjoy having a physical uh, physical version of the book, buy it through the uh, the link on our website if you so desire. Yeah, just be careful. Just be careful you don't buy too much through our affiliate links at once. You don't want to make us uh, too rich off of the uh, several cents in each book, several dollars in each book <laughs> that we earn. Uh, <clears throat> yes, but you've got, you've got options. This is a very accessible text, and it is at 
I think I think our podcast, like the hill we're all gonna that you and I are gonna die on, is hey, these texts that don't sound interesting, actually they really are. Actually, this socialist realist text, it is interesting. Actually, this book about saints' lives, it is oh, interesting. Baby, I'm coming back to socialist realism. You th- you thought I was done. <laughs> I am coming back to it. When are we gonna cover socialist realist hagiography? Pretty soon. Tell me that, Matt. Pretty soon. <laughs> Does that exist? Pretty soon. But I'm going to push back on that concept. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. I'm talking about it in my master's thesis. I'm going to have, I'm going to do about 100 episodes on uh, <laughs> the new economic policy and the transition <laughs> to socialist realism. Do we, do we have to write our own saint's life in, 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 in relation to the, the NEP and, and socialist realism? Does that exist? Well, well we, get to, we, get to, we can talk about it. We can talk about it after. That's true. We'll, we'll find it. We'll find it. I got some pushback for that theory. It does exist, and I got some pushback for the theory, but this is not for a five Sergius episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm interested. I'm ready. Let's, let's stop recording and talk about it now. All right. Sounds good. But we can, okay. Oh, wait, but we have to do the sign-off really quick. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, everybody. You, you, have to, you have to go. Cameron, can you get the door before so people <laughs> don't hear us talking about it? Let me like, quickly turn on the sound machine so they can't. So this is truly private information. Yeah, I can put on my noise machine. <laughs> well, Matt, before we wrap up, and I think people have already guessed this a little bit, but on a scale of one to Yeltsin, where are you? I'm, I'm approaching a Yeltsin. I'm like the man handing the beer to Yeltsin. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that happened. I someone had to have. There's no way Yeltsin was getting his own. Was getting. I assume you're talking about the time he like was in the U.S. and got so drunk that he was like wandered outside in his underwear. No, I was not. But I do like that story. Okay. That is a good story. I'll link it in the show notes. Thank you. Um, (laughs) How about you? Where are you? I'm not quite approaching Yeltsin, but I I did have a a decent amount of whiskey before we started, and I've had uh, about two beers, two 8% beers since then. So I'm definitely an eight, as you could tell. I, I, maybe you can't tell. I don't know. There's, there's in my mind right now. There's a lot of things I know I need to edit out of this podcast, but I don't remember what they are anymore. So we'll see if I actually do. Um, <laughs> no, I hope you leave it until like the Thursday night before it releases, and you're like, oh, it was probably fine. It's been two, like several weeks ago, so it, I think I remember it being good. And you just release it. And then we have to <laughs> shut down. Just... Unedited. Then we have to shut down. <laughs> then we truly do. Then we truly do get dragged, canceled, whatever on on Twitter. But the joke was on them because. We've already gone to the monastery. <laughs> the, the, the joke is by the point everyone's like, actually, these guys are aggressive. We're, we're already we're already offline. We're, we're already in the monastery. We're out. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well. Anyways. Um, and Matt, <laughs> God, we really should not record, record when we are this drunk. It's oh, really just embarrassing. It really is. Um, <laughs> uh, well, what are we reading next week, Matt? Next week, we're going to be reading the Polychayevs along with its translator, Dr. Ian Garner. Stay tuned as we slowly turn this into a permanently socialist realism podcast. Uh, If you're interested, you can find the text freely available that he translated on his website, igarner.net. The link will be in the show notes if Cameron remembers to do that, which hopefully he does. We'll see. We'll see. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, which I think the list has grown so thick I can no longer say it in a single (laughs) breath. We'll see. Uh... We've got Drew, Jeff, Janice, Anne, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, Roland, Elise, Mysterious Donor Dude, Joanne, Drew, Yitza, and Alex. 
Oh, hey, I did it. Uh, <laughs> podcasting isn't free, and grad school does not pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.